Tracy, aren't you wondering what Harmony Metal is? I am. I actually am. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Harmony Metal is recycled sterling silver, and our friends at White Light Productions only use Harmony Metal when they create their sea glass jewelry. Okay, now it's all coming back to me. And we talked about this before. And I appreciate that because it is so much better than ripping a hole into the earth to get more metal. We love White Light Productions Sea Glass Jewelry. Uh, as you know, we've talked about them on our podcast before, and you can check out their designs at www.seaglass.us. They have so many styles. Find some for someone you love. You know Tracy and I love to send mail because we are so heckin' far apart from each other, and their jewelry makes a perfect thoughtful gift that is as good for your sensitive little ears as it is for the planet. So check out seaglass.us and be sure to use our code for 10% off. It is WF10. That's for our Willing and Fable listeners, WF10. I made homemade from scratch sweet potato gnocchi over the weekend. What? Oh my god, Rowan, it was so good. You could easily make it gluten free. Um, I used like regular flour, but I'm sure you could use literally any mm. flour substitute. It was so it was sweet potato. Oh, I, you super can't eat this because I put in a bunch of cheese. You also don't need the cheese. Again, you can. I'm sure cashew. I can something. just be excited for you. It's really okay. <laughs> All I want to do is find delicious recipes and then cook them for you. And then I realize that I need to make adjustments to make them safe for your consumption. <laughs> and I'm determined to do it because it was so good. And there's, I accidentally bought vegan cheese the other day at the mm. store because it has this big thing that says sharp cheddar. And then in tiny letters above it, it says tastes like. I know. I don't know why companies put the gluten-free or the dairy-free label so small because the people who are looking for it would be helped by big text and the people who don't want to buy it would also be helped by big yeah. text. Yeah. So I bought it and made a grilled cheese sandwich with it. It was delightful. It just melts slower. Yeah. I was I was losing my mind trying to figure out why my sandwich was not <laughs> cooking the way I'm used to. <laughs> and then I looked at the package and was like, why does it say tastes Oh, no. <laughs> this evil cur sent me a picture, many pictures today, of the last time she was in L.A., which was a very, very long time ago. Five was a long time years. Ago. Yeah. I'm always visiting you back in our hometown where I actually like to be, but still, <laughs> come visit me. Yes, I really do want to come visit you this year at some point. It's the plan. I went to my local vaccinated people only bar for the first time the other night and it was a delight and you would love it there because it's all about the vibe i love that i love a good vibe although i will say as an introvert who has been only around people i like for a very long time human beings are overstimulating this is just too many they're so overstimulating i don't think i realized how sensory sensitive i have 
either always have been or have become. Until we've started going out back into the world, and the mere idea of even sitting with people I adore for a few hours, of just having to get dressed and get ready and then drive, and it's exhausting. Yeah, um, I have this very unfortunate thing that's been happening to me where, you know, I get to interact with people more. It's lovely work things, but then every time I get into my car on my way to do said thing with all these vaccinated, lovely people, I get a headache, like in prep. Yes. What is I that? totally understand that. I, I couldn't tell you what it is. I don't know. It, maybe it's stress. Maybe it's our bodies going, stay safe. Don't go out into the world. I don't know. It's uncomfy. It, because it feels like a premonition at this point because it happens so often. Mm -hmm. It feels like I'm the main character of a horror movie. And oh, this and is the, the one signal. genre you don't want to be the star of. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be the first girl. I don't want to be the last girl. I don't want to be in the horror movie at all. No, I don't want to be in it. I don't want to watch it. It's not my bag. I only want 80s horror movies that are more camp than they are horror. I mean, I'm fine with the genre. It's just I don't want my life to be that genre. <laughs> no, I would rather not. Please and thank you. What genre do you want your life to be? High fantasy. How's that going for you? Are you still in the beginning part? The first two chapters where you're introduced to the character and they weirdly tell you everything about her in one lump paragraph. She has to go about yeah. a normal life until, until. Until. I'm still waiting for the until, but it's coming. It's there. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? I, I mean, yeah. Although. Right? I'm available for a good sci-fi. I just don't want a dystopian sci-fi. Yeah, I'm 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 the same. Yeah, I'm the same. I prefer high fantasy, but sci-fi is also fine. Um but if it's one of those things where, you know, the computers are sentient and people ruined everything so much that they now have to, I don't know, be part cyborg, that's not mm. the narrative I'm here for. I am also available for an urban paranormal story. I am having one of those days where I, every word I've ever thought, gone. I'm so glad we're recording a podcast I today. know. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing to record a podcast where I can rely really heavily on my facial expressions to get me through. <laughs> my brain is so fried, and the thing that went first today was words. No one knows pharmacy. how much you talk That's with your hands. That's the word I was trying to think of for like the last hour. I couldn't remember the word pharmacy. No, no, no. I knew what you meant because you did the gesture for trying to open a child-proofed bottle. Yeah. But I can't do that when we're recording a podcast. Right. Yeah, none of the listeners know how much you talk with your hands. No, that is a fun fact about me. <laughs> <laughs> it's only a fun fact to people who only know your voice. Do you think people ever get us confused? Like they think your voice goes with my body or vice versa? Ooh, please write in and tell us. Or oh, do we so look fun. like how you thought we'd look? Because that's also very... Something I always I always imagine what podcasters look like before I see them. Mm, mm -hmm. Sometimes they look exactly how you imagine, and sometimes they're like the reverse of everything you thought they look like. Mm. Yeah, hi, I'm Rowan Hall, and I look like the reverse of everything you thought I'd look like. And I'm Tracy Harrison, and I look exactly how you're picturing. Whatever you have in your mind, it's accurate. 
And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. And if you'd like to support us, you can do so by subscribing, leaving a review, finding us on Patreon at patreon.com slash willingandfable, checking out our merch, or you can bake a cake made with love and spite and decorate it with our logo. But no matter what you do, we are happy to have you here today. Ooh, a cake of love and spite. Yeah, it felt like us. That felt like the right kind of cake for us. I want a spite cake. I'll make you a spite cake. I think that's I a that cake that secretly has vegetables in it. Like, it's green and it's matcha tea, but it secretly is green because of spinach. <laughs> I would rather a spinach cake than a matcha cake. Are you team matcha or no matcha? I love matcha. That? What is wrong with you? I would rather eat grass. In fact, I'm sure it'd be the exact same experience. Okay, 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 okay. Real quick, miss, I don't want to yuck your yum. <laughs> I Get think out. you can do it. That's fine. You can enjoy it. I don't think there's anything wrong with you for enjoying it. I just think it tastes like grass. I think that you and I, having known each other since the the young, young age where kids somehow convince each other to eat grass i do think <laughs> it is acceptable for you to yuck my yum like i i've known you long enough that you have supported me through enough foods that you can yuck on the matcha cake but only again you. my thing is i'll even bake you one i'll bake you one i'll bring you matcha lattes all day every day i'm just never gonna eat it myself okay so you will like the idea of this then i guess but not the flavor. Kaylee and I not long ago watched Great British Bake Off and we mm -hmm. baked a matcha tea cake with elderflower icing. That sounds in theory amazing. Right, right. Um, and it was kind of like a breakfast cake, you know, the dense kind of bready mm, quality yeah. rather than like a like fluffy. A loaf. Yes, it was very, very good. You would have hated it and honestly more for me. Oh, hey, 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 we have two new patrons to thank. Yeah, okay, let's do it. So we have two huge thank yous for Stacey A. and Stefan B. Thank you for supporting Willing and Fable and making it possible for us to research and tell these stories. And we really value the opportunity that we're having to get to know you. So thanks for joining us. <laughs> because of our new patrons and... Our new listeners, Tracy and I, made the mistake of of looking at our analytics. Oh my god! Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, yep. And we now have realized that we are being perceived. Yeah, people, <laughs> people actually listen to this podcast, and I have to square that reality away in my own head. Yes, I would like to thank you. We'll leave it at that. Our our squiggliness about being seen will resolve itself when we just walk into a mirror and disappear into an alternate universe. Yes, that is that's how we will enter our high our high sci-fi universe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's also talk about our sponsor. Yes. Because I have a very particular question for you today, Tracy. Okay. Because you and I were on a Zoom call and I got kind of like a snatch glimpse of your really sparkly dice the ones with mm -hmm. the gold lettering and i just i need you to describe them and i also need you to hold them up for me because i can see you i perceive you <laughs> let me grab let me grab the jar 
Oh my god, the ASMR, the dice <laughs> ASMR. <laughs> oh no. Oh no, I dropped the D20. That was a predictable occurrence. <laughs> um, they are red and purple with some blue. They're kind of translucent and they shift colors and the lettering is gold and there are sparkles embedded within the dice so that when the light hits it, it's very sparkly and reflective, but they don't smack when you first look at them as being very sparkly. Ooh. This kind of translucent sparkly vibe when when you get a really good light behind them they're so beautiful i i adore them and i get genuinely distracted when i play with them they're from leah's curated collection correct yes yes they are so every week we get an excuse to talk about dice to talk about D because we are lucky enough to have greenleaf geek as our sponsor for the whole spring Leah from Greenleaf Geek makes custom handmade dice. She curates this gorgeous collection of dice. And we are spoiled by having more than a few sets of them. Yes. <laughs> and Leah was actually very cool. The handmade dice she made for me are the um, Galactic Disaster Buy set that she mm -hmm. made. And the curated set that you have you have kind of to go with mine a little bit because they, they have a similar vibe. Mm -hmm. So if you want handmade dice made for your campaign, if you want to scroll through a collection of dice that is already pre-selected as the most beautiful sets you can find. They're so beautiful. Head over to GreenleafGeek.com or check out GreenleafGeek on Instagram and Twitter at GreenleafGeek, of course. And please, if you do decide to go shopping, you sweet, sweet little crow, use <laughs> our coupon code FABLE, that's F-A-B-L-E. You'll get 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. And Leah will know that we are cool people. And we really do appreciate your assistance in that matter <laughs> because I want nothing more than to be that woman's friend. <laughs> yes. <laughs> She's amazing. So amazing. Love her dice. So grateful to have her as a sponsor, and we're grateful to have you as our listeners. That's it. That's all I've got. We're just grateful. Today's the day to be grateful. Now that we're grateful and happy, I guess we should dive into our kind of dark subject, yeah? Yeah, yeah let's do it. <laughs> I don't know how this episode exactly came into being, but Tracy and I picked two topics from the Old Testament by accident. How did this happen? It, completely unrelated. It, it just... We wanted to talk about stories of originally the idea was vaguely about crime and punishment. And then we were both drawn to two stories from the Old Testament. And here we are. I love the Old Testament. I always have because it's really intense. I've always thought of yes. it as like heavy metal Abrahamic religion. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And this story, I'm going first, is one that I have loved for a very long time, and it's Samson and Delilah. Mm hmm Samson is referred to as the first Jewish superhero on MyJewishLearning.com, and if that isn't just, like, the best little intro. <laughs> um, that is wonderful. And I actually owe my interest in this story to Tracy, because... Okay. Tracy made me a mixtape once. 
It was the best mixtape I have You have talked about the CD that I made for you for years, and it warms my heart every time. So when I got my first car, uh, which happened to have a CD player, she made it for me so I could play music in the CD player, which was a very cool thing to do. This woman, um, you put that song, Technologic? Is that what it's called? You just, it's like, buy it, move oh. it, break it, fix it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, um, yeah, that song, it's Technologic by Daft Punk. That's funny. And then <laughs> every other song was a song from Spring Awakening, and I didn't know that was a musical yet. So I thought it was just this really cohesive concept album that you peppered into the mix. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in this mixtape, Tracy introduced me to Regina Spector. I love her. One of her songs is called Samson. I listened to it on repeat while I was writing this episode. So in short, a summary. Old Testament, Book of Judges. Samson has a God-gifted superhuman strength that has one rule, never cut your hair. And Samson hooks up with the treacherous Delilah, who absolutely cuts his hair. And then the poor guy can't be in a Pantene commercial. She's mm-hmm. a duplicitous woman. Boom. Story sort of over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I have always loved this story because I absolutely Samsoned myself. Um, <laughs> my, I know what you're going to talk about. My first year of college was... Oh, just a nightmare on so many fronts, not the least reason being just a, a string of uh, health issues happening all at once. Back to back to back to back to yeah. slam in India. My insides and my klutziness conspired against me. I had to take a semester off college. It was very bad. At the time, I'd been bleaching my hair white, my eyebrows white. What yep. the hell? For years. And... So I just decided to do what many people do when life is hard. I cut off all my hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I it resulted in bad hair for a very long time, but it was cathartic. Good. I've never had that moment where I need the re- cathartic release of cutting off all my hair. I've done big chops where I've gone from pretty long to kind of bobs. Mm-hmm. But usually that's just a fun style choice, not like a, I need this moment of change but i also change my hair so frequently that that's not necessarily the best outlet for like a big thing for me your hair also tolerates everything you do to it with a smile it really does it really i can't i I really have nothing to complain about with my hair after knowing you for as long as i have my (laughs) hair is perfect and wonderful and behaves well and, and needs no attention Right. So Tracy's been with me through my hair being straight for my young life, puberty hitting, and then apparently it deciding it was curly, and then me not dealing with that very well at all. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it did take a while for you to figure out the curly girl <laughs> method. And, uh, I bleached it into submission. I rocked straight hair for a while. Anyway, we're back, and uh, apparently I do strongly identify with my hair being my power, and if anybody comes along and is my Delilah... I uh, will respond, not unlike Samson, I imagine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Mark Zvi Brettler, writing for My Jewish Learning, penned the fantastic, cheeky article titled Samson. And I owe this fellow a 
debt because like 10 out of 10 on the educational feminist front, his translations of the original text were not only super helpful, but they're sometimes very humorous. I'll reference them throughout. MyJewishLearning.com in its entirety, it just has so many articles that I used for this episode and others. It is one of my major sources here um, and for a lot of our Abrahamic tales, and you will hear me quote it often, so please check them out. Also, a heads up, throughout this story, I will be heavily quoting the Old Testament, and I balance between two translations. One is a decidedly Jewish telling, and the other is clearly a Christian translation. Um... The first is from My Jewish Learning, and the second is from Bible Gateway, and I'll do my best to note each so that you can be aware of the different perspectives that are at play here. So, Brettler writes, quote, Samson is the final judge in the book of Judges, which describes the leaders of Israel after the death of Joshua, Moses' successor, and before the monarchy, beginning with King Saul and David. Judges is a poor translation of the Hebrew word shoftim, which in this context refers to local military leaders. They are presented in order from best to worst, culminating with Samson. Biblical leaders do not always present positive examples to emulate, and Samson certainly falls into this category. Born with supernatural strength and an obligation to God and his people, Samson spends most of his short life carousing and inciting violence. I try not to do this, y'all, but in predictable Willing and Fable fashion, we are actually going to explore Samson's story today by following his interactions with various women throughout Hmm. the tale. Okay. (laughs) Because that way of looking at it really helped me. So in the journal Proof Texts, in the article The Riddle of Samson, Edward L. Greenstein writes, The affiliation of the Samson story with the rest of the Book of Judges not to mention the entire Hebrew Bible, has often elicited dismay. Indeed, many a reader has shaken his head in bewilderment, frustrated in trying to find religious or moral virtue in the tale. Which I love as a way of starting off. We're just we're just going to wade through it and see if we can mm-hmm. find a moral. And truly, if we don't, does it matter? Like, that's yeah. something that I love in the way that this was presented to me in this go-around. Okay, let's do this. So, Samson, woman number one. The story begins with his unnamed mother, Eshet Manoah, or wife of Manoah, who, like many women in the Torah or the Old Testament, is a matriarch who struggles to conceive. So an angel of the Lord comes to her, and not to her husband, surprisingly, um... And as my Jewish Learnings article on Ashat Mano hilariously puts it, quote, the angel issues what sounds like the first ever Surgeon General's warning. Take care not to drink wine or other intoxicant or to eat anything unclean, for you will soon conceive and bear a son. In fact, these abstentions are not medical advice. Rather, they are given because, as the angel continues, the boy is to be a Nazarite to God from the womb onward. And this is interesting. A Nazarite is someone who took a vow to live a strict holy lifestyle in their adulthood. They Mm. choose not to cut their hair or drink intoxicants or, quote, become ritually impure. But Samson had it chosen for him before he was born. 
And then there's this very sticky period of the story where it seems as if Samson's father might accuse Eshet Manoah of adultery, which may have resulted in a very stressful ritual called a sota, in which a woman's fidelity is tested by her drinking what the Torah calls the bitter curse-causing waters. And that's basically a scroll paper and dust mixed together with water, and hopefully after she drinks it, she comes out the other side still fertile, or else... The logic is she definitely cheated on her husband, and life is about to get very, very bad for her very, very quickly. But luckily, and perhaps weirdly, that didn't happen, even though the text suggests that the angel may have been Samson's real father. There's a lot of sexual Mm. subtext in this story. And honestly, Samson's dad, Manoah, plays the fool during this whole ordeal. But his wife is calm and cool and collected, and Samson is born. His name comes from the Hebrew Shimson, translated to sun, as in sun in the sky. And our boy is incredibly strong. So the next woman in his life, woman number two, is also unnamed. Of course. (laughs) She's a (laughs) Philistine from Timnah. And Samson's parents are very upset that he is in love with a foreigner. And I'd just like to toss this out there, that in these chapters, basically every time the Philistines are mentioned, it's like the uncircumcised Philistines. That's the phrase. Okay. So Chabad.org describes the next part of the adventure in this way. The Philistines were a nation of marauders living in the west of the Holy Land. They were constantly harassing and pillaging the Jews. For 40 years, the Jews suffered terribly under the heavy Philistine hand until finally, Samson took a stand. Samson was too modest to undertake leadership of a Jewish army. He also did not want to provoke the Philistines into further terrorization of his Jewish brethren. He decided that he would avenge then himself by engaging in personal conflicts, intimidating them and preventing them from harassing the Jews. He began seeking ways to get into close contact with the Philistines. So as we move forward, we should keep in mind that the Philistines are in power. Mm -hmm. And the actions that he's taking seem to me to be covert because they have to be. Yeah, it sounds like they can't go up against the power in a head-to-head way if they are not the ones, if they're not equal. So it's the same way of when you have to take someone down, you go in from the inside, you sneak in, you do it in small ways. Right. And as the Old Testament text says, and this is from my Jewish learning, his father and mother did not realize that this was the Lord's doing. He was seeking a pretext against the Philistines, for the Philistines were ruling over Israel at the time. But there's some debate about this, you know, whether Samson was, in fact, acting out the Lord's wishes of having this pretext to attack the Philistines with this Philistine wife, or if Samson just wanted to do what he wanted with whomever he wanted. Women are, throughout the story, his weakness, especially women that are implied to be foreign. Hmm. And this man is known for his, quote, wandering eyes. We would say perhaps like strength of body, but weak of will. Mm, Okay. So we're going to quickly divert to a discussion of animal cruelty. 
Skip ahead 30 seconds if you don't want to listen. It's going to be fast. Do I have the option? Nope. Samson does not have a great history with animal cruelty. In Judges 14.5, Bible Gateway translates, Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands, as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with a woman, and he liked her. Okay. Okay. I'm interested that the the comparison is he tore a lion as he would have torn a goat. Right, as though that was like, oh, okay, now I have a frame of reference. Thank you. Great. So then again, in Judges 15.3, it says, This time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. All right, so that's the end of those descriptions. We're through. Here's the thing. My my dude gets gets more creative as he goes. I'll give him that. And I described in the instance with the lion, you know, it said, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of one of the three ways that this strength is described you know is it strength that was divinely given by this angel is it the lord coming to him at various moments or is it the hair we we kind of get these three different tellings okay so now we're back to samson woman number two this Mm -hmm. philistine woman he's going to marry the woman that he met after the incident with the lion Mm -hmm. on his way to marry her He went back to the lion carcass, and inside a swarm of bees had made their home. And they also produced tons of honey. So he scooped it out, and he ate it as he went on his way, and he never told his parents about the entire incident. So Samson gets there, and he holds a seven-day wedding feast, as was tradition, and he chose 30 Philistine men to be his, quote, companions. He offered the men a riddle. And to whoever answered correctly, he would give 30 linen garments. But if no one got it, they would have to give garments to him. Okay. The riddle goes, quote, Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. This is a riddle about honey being in the carcass of that murdered lion. Like, is this enough of a common occurrence that strange people are going to go, Ah, yes. When we put honey inside dead yeah. things. Yeah, carcass honey. My favorite. Probably not. Uh, yeah. On the fourth day of the feast, the Philistine men asked Samson's wife to help them. Bible Gateway translates this way, quote, Coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing. You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her. 
because she continued to press him. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Rude. Yeah, it's... There's a there's a lot going on here. So, the men threaten the wife and her family with murder if she doesn't help them. So she does go against her husband, Samson, but not necessarily for selfish reasons. Our girl just doesn't want to die. Mm-hmm. And there's this interesting word that is attached to her, and that's pressed. She pressed him. Mm. And I want to remember that because it's going to come into play later. Okay. In the meantime, if you had not plowed with my heifer, are you kidding me? Yeah, rude. So, you know, he thinks that she was sleeping around. Samson is quite mad. But if this is his excuse to attack the Philistines, it's going very well. If he genuinely loved this woman and he just wanted to marry a foreigner, this is going very badly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So in the end, the spirit of the Lord came unto Samson. He killed 30 men, stripped them, and gave away their clothes. Sometime later, Samson came back to his Philistine wife with the offering of a goat. And when her father said that he, quote, gave her to another man and instead offered Samson the girl's younger sister, Samson did that thing with the foxes, and while he was killing hundreds of Philistines, the Philistines killed and burned the girl and her father. So this woman that he married was just given away to someone else and then killed? She's not even named. Ugh. So time for woman number three. I want to start off by saying our girl Delilah, the one with the name, All evidence points to her having not been a sex worker at all. And many interpretations love to claim that. Mm -hmm. Samson did have a relationship with another woman who was a sex worker, but it was not our leading lady. And that sex worker is woman number three. So here's a translation from Bible Gateway. One day, Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. Then, a few sentences down the page, quote, Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. So those are two different women. Okay. And they're usually just squished together? Some In some translations. And I think mm-hmm. even when it's correctly portrayed in writing, sometimes people just forget. Because Delilah mm-hmm. is depicted as this like temptress who then is his undoing. And, you know, we we love to make those women into sex workers because mm-hmm. it's a very easy way for people to associate negative connotations with. Right. Her. It's a shorthand way to imply an immoral person. Right. And Samson and Delilah did have extramarital sex. And people don't love that for them, but I definitely do. <laughs> so... <laughs> We're going to get into that in a sec. In the meantime, we're already on girl number four. That's Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines came to Delilah and they say, quote, 
See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. And I can't believe I came across this, but according to Hope Bollinger from Crosswalk, quote, we know they offered at least $90,000 for her to find out her lover's (laughs) secret. I definitely did not check on that number, but I just love the idea that that is floating around the internet because it paints that very specific picture of who Delilah might have been and why she chose to betray him. And in that case, it's vast material gain. Well, in a time when there was only one way to get that, and that was through marriage for women. Exactly. There are other options, though. (laughs) So, first of all, if Delilah was so loyal to the Philistines, why did she need to be paid such a vast sum of money? Because it doesn't sound like she had much power, so they probably could have just made her do it by threatening Mm -hmm. to burn her alive. J. Cheryl Exum, also writing from My Jewish Learning, brings up a few very interesting points. It's unlikely that the Philistines would seek the aid of an Israelite woman. And it's unlikely that the original authors of this story would depict one of their countrymen, even though she's a woman, in such a negative light. The bribe could also point to her being an Israelite who needed the money as a very strong reason to betray one of her own people. Or the bribe is just meant to emphasize what a crummy person she is. Mm. No matter which way you slice it, quote, only one of the three women with whom Samson is involved, his wife, is specifically identified as Philistine. And I I really want to emphasize that because this story gets told and retold as a Philistine woman being part of the bad guys shaving this guy's hair. And I think that there is more to it. So here's the part of the podcast where I recommend another podcast. (laughs) And it's called Bible Bash. Their write-up says, quote, In each episode of the Bible Bash podcast, Liam, a trans queerish man and co-host, cis gay Bible scholar, Peterson Toscano, take turns presenting the text. They then discuss. In addition, each episode they present another text, a non-biblical text of note, religious or secular, that may or may not correspond to the Bible text. Their episode tie me up delilah judges 16 is awesome Ooh, okay and i just want to specify because everyone's hearing me say this you're not looking at their logo bible bash is not them hopping on a podcast and just ripping into bible text it's not a a bash in the negative it's like a party Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and these are two very educated people who are just like bringing these short sweet episodes of perspective The podcast calls Samson a, quote, reluctant judge. He doesn't choose to be a judge. It's bestowed upon him. And you'll remember I mentioned that at the beginning of the text. And I think that that's such a wonderful point. Peterson Toscano goes on to describe the sort of surveillance state that Samson and Delilah 
were likely living under. There was no way for either of them to make choices without the violent influence of the Philistines looming over their heads. And on the other side of it, everyone is expecting Samson to be a hero of God. Mm -hmm. And in that setting, people make very desperate choices. As Bible Bash points out, this is a story of forbidden love and also potentially sexy fun. The hosts point out that many churches only value sex as a procreative act. But the Samson and Delilah story reveals the value of sex for vulnerability. If we believe that their love was true and that they are both in a dangerous position and they want the best for one another, Samson's downfall is actually him willingly giving his own life to protect Delilah. Mm. So that in mind, Old Testament Translated by Bible Gateway. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I will become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With the men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, You have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, If anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then, with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, All this time you have been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, if you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with the pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric, and tightened it with the pin. Again, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled the pin and the loom with the fabric. Then she said, How can you say I love you? when you won't confide in me. This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. It's really interesting to me to think of the progression through the lies that Samson tells Delilah. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't actually thought of it until Bible bashers really broke it down in a very clear way. She asks him, an open-ended question, you know, how do I, how do I get rid of your strength? And he asks her to tie him up. That's mm -hmm. his choice. And the first tie is an instrument of war. It's the bowstrings. And then we get progressively closer to household items. We get a normal rope and then we get the loom. And then he finally allows her to get closer to the truth in a very intimate way. He has her braid his hair. 
And if we consider that the love between them is real and that there was perhaps as much sex as I would hope for them given this kind of bondage narrative, then this is a, an interesting journey for the pair. Mm-hmm. This story was depicted to me originally in my youth in a way that involved so much more conniving on Delilah's yes. part. Yes, the, I actually am very surprised that it was just her being like, how do I do it? How do I take away all your strength? And he lies. And she's like, how, do you, like, how dare you lie to me? She is offended that he lied to her. And they go back and forth. And I didn't realize it was so straightforward. Yeah, I think it's worth noting here that Tracy and I grew up in a town where there was a Catholic megachurch directly across the street from our high school. Yeah. I think that is vital to our original understanding of it because in many churches, sex is demonized. And I think that is one of the reasons Delilah is portrayed as a sex worker. And I Mm -hmm. think it's one of the reasons that the possibility of this being a very intimate sexual relationship is stripped out of the story. Because when you think about the fact that the Philistines are always in the room, they're hidden just out of sight. I don't think she's offended. I think she's desperate. Oh, yeah. And these lies that he tells, they're just prolonging their ability to continue to be together because they're logical. Like, okay, Mm. tie me up. And Mm -hmm. the Philistines have reason to think that she truly is working for them to the best of her ability. Mm -hmm. But it also belies this level of trust. There's just something so interesting to me about her saying, tell me how I can get rid of your power. And he says, well, tie me up. And so then she ties him up and tries it. And she's like, well, you lied to me. That didn't work. And then like, it's not that he's telling her and she's later figuring out that it wasn't true. She's immediately trying it. He knows exactly what she's doing. She's saying, how do I get rid of your strength? He says, do this thing. She does it and then goes, it didn't work. Well, even before that, she goes, the Philistines are upon you. So he knows what's going on. It's not a secret. He's not just sitting around going, gee, I wonder why she doesn't want me to be strong. They are both participating in this in a way that I didn't understand properly before. Same. Bible Gateway translates the next phrase of this story in this way. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. And nagging is a word that's really only used for women. Mm -hmm. But many translations use the word pressing. And we're going back to the first wife. Mm -hmm. And pressing is a word that is often linked not only to uh, verbal coercion, but also physical coercion. And he is such a willing participant in this that it is very likely that she is pressing him in a way that is very physical and very consensual and not at all for procreation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Samson is no fool. He He's participating. He tells Delilah very clearly, quote, No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. In some stories, they will say that 
Delilah lured him to sleep and then one of the Philistines shaved his head, but most commonly, she lures him to sleep with his head in her lap Mm -hmm. and then she shaves his head. Which again, our boy knows what's going on. He just told her. Mm -hmm. In the book Lion's Honey, The Myth of Samson by David Grossman, he describes Samson, quote, as a lonely man, forever tortured and enslaved by a god who has chosen for him a demanding mission. And the mission is the salvation of Israel. And though he is gifted with incredible physical strength, his will does not align with the rules that are required to maintain that strength. Grossman believes that Samson tells Delilah the truth, quote, with the foolish innocence of one who believes that if he were to confide everything to another person all at once in a kind of instant transfusion, he would finally achieve a feeling of genuine intimacy. It's really heartbreaking when you put it in that perspective. It is a new way to understand his journey through these women and how he's constantly trying to find intimacy. Mm-hmm. The fact that he was given this task by God and the constraints do not necessarily align with how he wants to behave does give an interesting justification for why he consistently goes to foreign women to find mm. that intimacy. Okay. And it gives me this idea of a man who's trying to understand why these people are his enemy. Yeah. And these incredibly violent acts against people and animals just communicate a rage that seems equally as internal as it is external. The idea of him being divinely chosen and yet not have the will to bear that burden i just like the idea of a protagonist who has such a strong burden and who's trying to live up to it as best he can in his own way he recognizes it he says that you know i am a nazarite i can't cut my hair he follows that but is still struggling so deeply and so emotionally and may not be he may not be the best person for it right and we have to remember that at the same time that all this is happening the philistines are controlling and killing the israelites so Mm -hmm. he's having this internal struggle and his people are having this external struggle there is the struggle of the state and there is the struggle of the man and they are not the same Mm mm-hmm So after the Philistines come and take the now-weakened Samson away, they gouge out his eyes and imprison him in Gaza. This gouging of the eyes is often linked to the fact that he had that wandering eye for women. Mm -hmm. While in prison, the uncircumcised Philistines, as it is often said, bring their wives to him, hoping that he will impregnate them and give them a divinely gifted child. Ooh, that's horrible all around. Every way imaginable, that's that's horrible. Those scores of women are sort of the last women in our charting of this tale. Also unnamed, they are, they are the masses. They are the continuation mm-hmm. of his sexual journey that is often put on him. Like, he is still carousing. But we have to realize that he is in prison now. Right. He doesn't have a choice. But his hair began to grow again. And one day, when the Philistines had Samson brought out and stood among the pillars to entertain them, Samson prayed. 
as Bible Gateway translates, quote, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines from my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus, he killed many more when he died than when he lived. Mm. I am so compelled by this in so many ways. First, his hair is growing back, but okay, you know, he prays. So was the strength ever really tied to the hair, or was the hair just the rule? Or was it tied to his sense, his internal sense of worthiness? Right, or sense of self. We have so many mm-hmm. options. And yeah. the idea that he fulfills his divine mission the best upon his own deathbed. I find that really compelling from the perspective of him spending his whole life feeling like he's the wrong person for this choice and the broader picture seen by someone more omniscient than him is that everything about his life is leading to this death. Right. There's there's often this debate of, you know, did God want him to carouse with the Philistines so that he had reason to kill them? Or was he going against God's wishes? And this final death does kind of point to him actually having fulfilled the steps of the journey all along. Mm-hmm. Blinding characters is always, always a sign that something big is going on. And the fact that he is often criticized for his wandering eye and in his final moment at which he achieves that divine goal, he is blind. Mm-hmm. But perhaps blind to the outside world, but not his interior world. I'm so, I'm so interested in this man. The compassion that I have for him now in this journey does not trump the fact that he was a son of a gun the whole journey, just killing people, killing animals. Yeah, not a, not a perfect human, but an interesting one. So for my story today, I'm going with a modern retelling, and that is because I love what people are doing adapting this story into new worlds. Um, One of my favorite that I just stumbled across is called Sam and Lila, and it's a comic. And it combines Ooh. sci-fi and superheroism and romance, and it's set in a quirky bake shop. <laughs> it's, it's just so that. wholesome and sweet. And it actually makes readers root for the couple, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, truth be told, my love of this story does always go back to that Regina Spector song. It's so good. It's just, I love her music. And one of the lyrics in it is, the history books forgot about us and the Bible didn't mention us. And that is such an interesting lyric for a song that is revolving around a biblical figure. Mm-hmm. All right. So you ready? You ready for a Rowan adaptation of Samson and Delilah? I'm so ready. If you've ever fucked around with kitchen scissors and bleach and box dye, you know exactly the scene I'm about to describe to you. Just a mess. 
everything that I thought should be contained was flying around the room in splatters and scraps and color and paper and old towels and flecks of hair. And we kept nervously laughing in a way that made my sides ache, and I was drinking this long, cold tea that made my lips pucker. Are you ready? I looked down at Sam, sitting on the toilet lid. He was staring in the mirror, still as a statue. His long, brown hair was hanging like a glossy curtain down his back, and I could tell that the touch of it on his neck was making him itch in this awful, internal way that only those things that violate our entire fucking identity really can. He was wearing this baggy shirt that obscured the hourglass curves with which I was intimately familiar, and after a year's worth of growing, his eyebrows had finally connected in this thick, masculine swoop that framed his frustration. I could tell he was definitely not ready. So I took the scissors to my own hair. They were those shitty, orange-handled desktop monstrosities that had absolutely no right to come near a single follicle. But it's what we had in the apartment, and they just looked brutal. You know, not the instruments of training or skill, just... The tools of an exorcism, I guess. My bangs needed a trim anyway, so I leaned over the sink and started tackling the choppy sort of hack job hair I'd been rocking for almost a year. It was one of the parts about me that Sam's parents least liked to see. And I started us nervously laughing again while I did an impression of Sam's dull father. Braid my hair. Sam's voice was as low as I'd ever heard it the quiet intimacy that echoed in the small room. Truth be told, I'd not really touched his hair much. It was normally in this messy man bun that felt like a bright yellow yield sign as far as physical touch went, so I kept my hands occupied elsewhere most days. But we both looked at each other with this excited, manic expression that only comes when it's 2 a.m. and you have to cut off your own hair or else the world is going to swallow you up. We were whispering now. I was combing out those long lengths into the most neat, perfect braid I could possibly manage, and Sam was (laughs) tying himself up in knots. Like, literally tying himself. He'd done this trick with his sweatshirt sleeves that made his arms disappear into kind of a homemade... The harness jacket of fleece and panic. Are you okay? Sam kind of grinned. Not yet. I was holding his braid in my hands, and the scissors were wide open to saw through those 20 years of middle part, straight down the back, suburban girl lengths of hair. He just gave me the slightest nod. It was barely a movement. And then I fucking hacked that shit off. I held that braid up for Sam like a sacrifice to whatever god was available for a late night offering. We collapsed on the floor in this pile of whispering and giggling, snotty, teary kissing. And I don't know what it was. We were grown-ass adults, but something about it felt like sneaking out at a sleepover, secretly piercing your ears at summer camp. Wait, 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 wait. Let me clean up the back. I pushed him off me and back to where I could finish cutting. Now, I'm not saying I'm a savant, 
But what I did with those scissors and clippers was frankly groundbreaking. An at-home haircut so legendary that mere mortals will tell the story of my triumph for decades to come. No kidding, I could have a career as a barber tomorrow. I transform the men into men, baby. I am merely the hand that did the shearing, but oh, what skill that hand has. And the whole time I'm working my magic, figuring out how to use clippers and, like, know when bleach develops or whatever. And Sam is just looking at me in the mirror, untying himself and saying my name every so often in surprise. He'd tilt his head to a new angle and say, Delilah, in this shocked, blissful whisper. Delilah. Looking back, I think that's the most sensual way he'd ever said my name. Delilah. The whole time I was cutting and dying, Sam was just... untying himself. (laughs) The hoodie somehow became unwrapped, and he picked up that long, sleek braid, and he kept rubbing tears out of his eyes like he'd never seen his own face before just kind of stumbling around blind, although he was sitting in the bathroom with me the whole time. Sam looked smaller, somehow. Not weak, but like like the little kid version of himself. Not the adult one that had been running around for years trying to protect all his sweet, soft feelings, and Not the Sam who'd had a thousand everyday people parrot some bullshit about, like, God's will and whatever convenient manipulation sold more misery. It's just this small, simple grace that was at the core of him that existed before the naming of things. So he would say, Delilah. And I knew he was thinking about the next time we'd see his parents, or, like, hell, the first time he just walked out the damn door. If they would recognize or rebuke him or imply that this always truth that they now had to see was a change that they could grow back. I just kept working. And I would say, Sam? And we just kept up these little private prayers until I finally finished rinsing the dye from his hair in the sink. It was blue. Bright, rich, shocking blue. Again, I must have done okay, because that boy just looked... mm. (laughs) He looked like himself. Hey, Sam. I couldn't stop smiling. Samson, he said, for the first time. Hey, Samson, I said. Hey, Delilah. You know the feeling of freshly buzzed hair. It's soft to touch, and it's soft to be touched. I stayed up that whole night just running my hands over the back of that boy's neck. He teased me that it itched, but I knew by the way he fell asleep that it didn't. Not really. Not in that same internal way his hair had itched before. (laughs) Everything was still a mess. It was too late now to start any cleaning, but... It kind of felt non-messy in the bed that night. 
I felt the calm of his breathing and the way his body relaxed, and I just thought, God damn, he's the strongest man I know. Please just let this make things a little easier. Let him be as weak as every other man every once in a while. I knew that starting tomorrow, anyone who saw his hair would give me credit, which is cool, I guess. I didn't do too bad with the trimming. But it really wasn't me that did the hard stuff. This was all Samson's story. And it's not really about a fucking haircut. That has to be in my top three favorite stories you've ever told on this podcast. Really? Yeah. It's such a... It's such a, I think it comes from the combination of the person in you who has always loved telling stories and the person in you who was drawn to acting for that same reason that you just embody <laughs> these you. different people when you write these stories. And I say it like every third episode, but the way you get into these little intimate moments, both internally and externally for the characters, is like my favorite thing about your writing style and the little moments in this story and the little interactions it feels like the kind of stage monologue i would want to just watch a youtube video of you know over and over and over tiktok was a big inspiration for me with this because i feel like the videos that you and i share so often are people having these very private moments of transformation Mm -hmm. and the coming into themselves i think that that's a big part of culture right now Uh, at least on the corner of the internet that we're in. Yeah. And I... I really, really, really love the idea of, like, grace and divinity kind of happening in these really, like, basic, everyday, ugly ways. Like, I I like a Delilah who is other to Samson because she's irreverent. Because she... doesn't operate in the same way and i like the idea of a like a life-altering transformation happening in a bathroom like the most mundane ugly place and with the tools that aren't necessarily the right for the job but they're the ones that you have i Mm -hmm. really just like that grace for them i want them to be in love (laughs) yeah that was that was beautiful the way they so loved each other in that story i think there's just such a power in loving someone so much you almost don't see how much you impact it you know her saying everyone's gonna think i did the hard part think i did all the work in this and her loving him enough and so much and in such a way that she sees the genuine strength in him and is more proud of that than anything she could have done. Learning about this story, and like all credit to my Jewish learning and the Jewish community on the internet at large, having the opportunity to read so many texts where the writers presented a version to me that was more internal and it was more about the man than mm-hmm. the the nations was really helpful and i 
listen, I'm not going to sit here and say that, like, Samson was a good guy in, <laughs> and that everything was great. But I do like the opportunity to, in 2021, say, like, what if there's a version of this story that's not about the fucking haircut? Yeah. So, last words. Because the Israel-Palestine conflict and the numerous recent deaths are currently filling up my news consumption, mm -hmm. I just want to take a brief moment to acknowledge the obvious link that many will make between the story of Samson and Delilah and the modern-day Israel and Palestinian territories. We are not a news podcast, and many of our listeners will end up hearing this episode by the time the headlines have changed. But I want to quote Mehdi Hassan, hosting for MSNBC. Quote, Jewish Americans are just that, Americans, not Israelis. This is their home country. It got me thinking about how much racial and especially religious bigotry raises its head every time Israel or Gaza are in the headlines. Of course, this conflict has a religious dimension. Jews and Muslims care passionately about it. But it is not a religious conflict or a holy war. This is not about Jews versus Muslims, and don't let anyone fool you into believing that. So whether you are pro-Israeli or pro-Palestinian or just on the fence, let's please discuss this conflict through the lens of international law, international security, national security, human rights, self-determination, not through lazy, racist tropes about devious, all-powerful Jews or violent Muslim terrorists. Muslims around the world are not responsible or answerable for the actions of Hamas or any other militant group right now. Jews around the world are not responsible or answerable for the actions of the Israeli government or military right now. The violence there is bad enough without the rest of us adding a layer of brazen bigotry to it. He says it better than I ever could, but I just wanted to say that as we all continue to read headlines and hear news stories about this ongoing conflict, let's please do our best to remember what each source stands to gain from the mm -hmm. people who are consuming the media. And like Bible Bash's interpretation of Samson and Delilah, most people are really just trying to live as best as they can in the circumstances that they are in. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's really important for us to acknowledge, but also acknowledge that we're not the people to be sharing our opinions on it and that there's a better way to have the conversation than you see it done often online. Yeah, I feel very grateful that I am in a position where I get news, like the quote that I just read, and I'm hearing right. people teach me in those very useful ways and i i just do not want anyone sitting here <laughs> hearing the story of samson and delilah and deciding that it is an appropriate moral for anything that is going on currently in the world because this story teaches us a lot mm -hmm. but it is not the same as the current conflict so just as you consume the real stories about real people, just please be aware of who is telling them to you and why they are telling you those stories. Because it's important. Sources are mm -hmm. important. Yes. <laughs> so now we're on to another Old Testament story. 
Yes, we are. All right. So everyone, today I'm covering the famous story of Sodom and Gomorrah from the book of Genesis. Now, Rowan, I'd always heard of this story as these cities were very sinful, so God smote them. And that was that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My understanding of this story, and I'm so glad you're covering it because I've always been very interested, is just people were boning and God was mm-hmm. mad. <laughs> yep. At the very worst, I'd heard it referred to as a story about the sin of homosexuality. But after doing my research this week, I have found it to be far, far more complex than that. Do you think that's ever going to stop happening to us? No. Uh, Unless we engage on a quixotic mission to change the world, which would be very foolish, but not unlike us to do. Wait, this podcast isn't a mission to change the world? (laughs) (laughs) We haven't um, written our mission statement as of yet. That doesn't mean it isn't. Don't perceive me. (laughs) God, don't perceive me. All right, so I'm going to (laughs) start with my story first this week and kind of tell the version that most people have heard of, you know, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but from from the perspective of a character I chose to tell it from. Mm -mm, Okay. Okay. I don't believe the world was always this way. I believe, or at least... I have to believe that once there was kindness at the root of every soul. But that's no longer the case. At what point did wickedness grow so thoroughly in men's hearts that they could no longer see the blood on their own hands as anything but a victory over other men? The Lord had made an agreement with Abraham that if ten righteous people could be found in the city, he would spare the whole of Sodom, but I knew from the start that it was doomed to fail. No righteous man would ever enter the city, and even if they did, they wouldn't last for long. Outsiders were not welcome here. Few things were welcome here outside of cruelty and violence. Kindness, generosity, compassion, and love were sneered at or even condemned. They once burned a young woman for even giving a beggar something to eat. The men of this city wanted power over everyone, and violence and cruelty were their tools to achieve it. I was not surprised when two men came to our door seeking shelter and hospitality. I was not surprised when my husband agreed to take them in. I was not surprised to learn that they were kind souls looking for a place to rest, and I was not surprised when the men of our city surrounded our home and began shouting at us to send the men out so they may know these outsiders. I can still hear it even now, the way their fists banged upon the door, the sound of flesh beating upon wood echoed in my ears like thunder as we huddled outside. They were so angry, I could feel their hatred slinking into the house and choking the air out of my lungs. They shouted for us to give them the strangers in our home, and when we refused, their anger doubled. They shouted at us and cursed our very existence for judging them and their decisions. We had few options, and even less time, the house would not hold out against the onslaught of violence. My husband offered up one of our daughters to the crowd. They wanted to violate these men in our home, and in order to save their lives, he offered up our children. They have not known men, he shouted to them. Show them kindness as you see fit. But they did not listen. They did not want our daughters. They wanted to hurt abuse, and humiliate the two men in our home. I watched in horror as the wood of the door splintered and broke, and the violent men 
made it through the house and started coming inside. Everything after that happened so quickly, I barely had time to register at all. The two men we were protecting stepped forward and shoved all of us behind them. They said something to the men of the city that I didn't hear, and suddenly, blindingly, they revealed themselves to be what they really were. Angels. After a long moment, the blinding light subsided and I could see once more, but but not everyone was so fortunate. In fact, all of the men who had been moments away from attacking us now lay on the ground, groaning in agony. Every single one of them was struck blind by the sight of those angels. They turned to us then in all their glory and commanded us to leave the city immediately. They told us not to look back at the destruction they were about to rain down upon this place, and we didn't argue or hesitate, and the four of us fled immediately. We made it to the top of the hill outside the city when we heard the first screams of terror. The agonizing, heart-stopping, horrified scream of humans watching as death fell down upon them. Great flames shot overhead and crashed behind us with such a force as to shake the ground. Heat scorched our backs as we climbed ever higher and ever further from the destruction, but a child's scream caught my ear, so like my own daughter's, that on instinct I turned to look. History will not remember my name, I think. My husband and our children and their children will go on to be remembered and create a legacy. But what legacy is there for me? To be remembered as a statue, a pillar, an object, to have my mistake laid out so bare for the world to remember me by that the woman inside is all but forgotten. The moment I turned around and saw what had befallen our home, I was frozen into a pillar of salt. I had stood by my husband that day. I held back the doors the men threatened to burst in. I even offered up my own children to save the lives of those angels, and yet I am no more than a memory, a statue of grief and a monument to mistakes. I think I am a reminder that even the best of us, the very best, are still no more than human. To be human is to be a multitude. I was a mother. I was a wife, I was kind and generous, and I was afraid. I can stand tall as a reminder of all that is good and bad in this world. I carry the weight of all of those salty tears shed by the righteous for those we cannot save. And I want you to know that my name is Edith. I want you to know for fear that no one else would choose to remember the woman I was and not the monument that I became. So we have another woman that doesn't have a name. She does actually have a name. I ended up finding that her name was Edith, but it's really? not usually described that way. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I don't want to give away anything with all my questions. <laughs> okay, so the book of Genesis contains a story that has stood for generations as one of the ultimate morality tales, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, along with Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, were known as the Cities of the Plain in Genesis, the King James Version. These cities were considered lush, well-watered, and suitable for livestock, and were situated on the Jordan River in the land of Canaan. What I didn't know before researching this, because I have limited Old Testament knowledge, 
Sodom and Gomorrah weren't the only cities destroyed. Oh. According to a video by Grunge titled The Untold Truth of Sodom and Gomorrah, they ask a question. But aren't Sodom and Gomorrah still the ones that get destroyed? Well, that's sort of the issue. The Bible repeatedly makes it clear that Adma and Zeboim went up in the conflagration, thanks to being equally sinful. Zoar's role is even more important. It's the surviving town that Lot flees to as God implements his whole plan of kill everyone and let me sort them out. End quote. So, uh, I feel like I'm being led down the garden path. Um, you're going to tell me that they weren't destroyed, aren't you? No, they were destroyed. No, no, no. There's no bait and switch. Like, they were destroyed. Um, <laughs> I have trust issues. <laughs> I know. No, they... So... Sodom and Gomorrah are the most famous of the cities that were destroyed. They just weren't the only ones destroyed. The bait and switch comes from the fact that the way people tell the story today is that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because they were so sinful, especially when it comes to sex, and especially because it's described as being a town filled with homosexual men. That is the part that is, I'm going to argue, not the case. We're going to get into some translations of words, aren't we? Yeah. I love it. We're going to get into some analysis. I love it. The most common version of the story says that two angels approach Abraham about the sins of Sodom. Abraham inquires if the Lord will spare the city if 50 righteous people can be found within. The Lord agrees. Abraham pleads for mercy and begins to lower the numbers. 45, then 40, then 30, then 20, finally landing on 10. And each time the Lord agrees. The two angels meet Abraham's nephew, Lot who brings them into his home and shows them kindness and hospitality. The men of the city come to the home, angry that an outsider like Lot is sheltering other outsiders. They demand to see the two angels disguised as men, saying, Where are the men that came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us, that we may know them. And in this case, no, does mean in the biblical sense. Does it really? So... Yes and no. Because I've read so much about this one word. Yes. So in this case, and what I'll get into, we will talk about a lot later. It's not that they were sexually interested in this men. It's that they wanted to humiliate and abuse and violate them the worst way they could think of. Oh. So horrible, but but not the way that it is portrayed today. Right. It's, um... Horrible in a wrath way, not as much horrible in a lust yes, way. Absolutely. So Lot refuses to give up the men, even offers his virgin daughters and said, saying, Do ye to them as is good in your eyes, but they don't accept his offer. We need to what why? Why? <sighs> because in the teachings of the Bible, hospitality is so important. You protect and shelter those who need you to protect and shelter them. So it's showing how righteous he is to give up his daughters. So I've been really underdoing it with cheese plates and nice drinks. I really should have virgin mm-hmm. daughters on tap. Yeah. Really, truly, you're dropping the ball. Uh. As they are about to break down the door, the angels pull Lot and his family away and strike all the men in the city with blindness. They command Lot to leave the city with his family and not to look behind them as they do. As Sodom and Gomorrah were being destroyed with brimstone and fire from the Lord, Lot's wife looked back at the city and she became a pillar of salt. What is up with the curiosity killed the cat being the moral so often when it comes to women? 
And should we be thinking that this pillar of salt is a metaphor for grief in kind of the way that you framed it, that this is like a a woman realizing the horror that's been wrought? I've seen it described both ways. I've seen it described, well, three different ways. One is the curiosity killed the cat. She couldn't follow orders, couldn't couldn't resist. That's the one I'm least interested in. The other being a metaphor for her bearing the weight of the innocence that were destroyed. The third being that there is a statue that looked like a woman crying, frozen in salt, and that the story was told around that. You know, you and I have covered enough stories where women look back when they shouldn't. Um, Mm -hmm. And I want you to know that if a being, even just a a human-looking thing, comes by and is like, go do this thing and do not look back, just don't do it. Just don't look. Yeah, I was was afraid you were about to say, I would look back for you. And like, don't do that. Don't look back. I don't care if you're worried if I'm following you. Don't look back. I want to know, like, how does peripheral vision factor into this? Because I feel like I could like walk backwards and like get a, a nice jaunty head tilt and maybe like acquire like you. You're, you're playing it too fast and loose with the rules. <laughs> this will be my downfall in our high fantasy lives. Your hubris. <laughs> As a woman, my pride. Yes, your womanly pride. All right. Rabbi Stephen Nathan wrote an article titled The Destruction of the Cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, in which he says, We read in Midrash Pirkei Eliezer, a collection of rabbinic homilies collected in the 3rd and 4th centuries in the land of Israel, that any resident of the cities who attempted to give food or aid to a poor person was subjected to death. As a matter of fact, the same Midrash tells us that Lot's daughter was convicted of giving bread to a poor person each time she went to the well for water, And as the people began her execution, she cried out to God. It was this cry that reached God and prompted God to send the messengers, angels, to Sodom and Gomorrah to see if their sin was as great as her cry would imply. Oh my gosh, this is why affluent areas punish people who are kind to homeless communities. This this text is how they justify it. I finally understand why they put spikes on things and make those benches that cannot be slept on. <sighs> I just didn't get through the whole text yet. Okay. That's it. Yeah. We. Oh, God. We do not have time to dive into all that. But another day, my I dear. I like that you can now tell when I'm riling you up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's taken me some time, but I figured it out. <laughs> no, I haven't. Anyway, continuing on to quote Wikipedia, though later Hebrew prophets named the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah as adultery, pridefulness, and uncharitableness, the vast majority of exegesis related to the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah view it as an exemplative condemnation of homosexuality. Rabbi Basil Herring, who served as head of the Rabbinical Council of America from 2003 to 2012, writes that both the rabbinic tradition and modern orthodox position consider the Torah to condemn homosexuality as an abomination. Moreover, that it conveys its abhorrence of homosexuality through a variety of narrative settings, God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah being a paradigmatic instance of such condemnation. <sighs> We're going to turn this around in a bit, I promise. Okay, but... We didn't even touch on the fact that Samson is often attributed to Hercules, Heracles, Mm -hmm. and how it may have come from that. But the Old Testament is close enough to the Greek and Roman timeline. Keep in mind, we're talking hundreds of years here. But, you know, close Mm -hmm. enough 
that I am not buying that men are not still operating in the yes, this is this is my man that I sleep with. I'm like right. situation. Right. It's just not <sighs> condemning homosexuality is not in the Bible nearly so much as many people would like to claim it is today. And there are many other things in the Bible that are condemned much more harshly that we don't even think about today. I mean, listen, I just asserted that sexy, sensual, vulnerable, loving bondage is in the Bible. So go off. <laughs> so we are off the rails on this show. <laughs> so to talk more about the the cruelty and the violence in the cities, Richter Norton views classical Jewish texts as stressing the cruelty and lack of hospitality of the inhabitants of Sodom to the, quote, stranger. The people of Sodom were seen as guilty of many other significant sins. Rabbinic writings affirm that the Sodomites also committed economic crimes, blasphemy, and bloodshed. The citizens also regularly tortured foreigners who sought lodging. They did this by providing the foreigners with standard-sized beds, and if they saw that the foreigners were too short for the beds, they would forcibly stretch their limbs, but if the foreigners were too tall, they would cut off their legs. As a result, many people refrained from visiting Sodom and Gomorrah. Beggars who settled in the two cities for refuge were similarly mistreated. Horrible. These are horrible places to be. And it's not because of a bunch of gay men running around. Yeah, now could you imagine the Airbnb? <laughs> I would like not to. Thank you. Can I – I think you might know the answer to this. When I was reading, you know, there's an angel at the beginning of my story. Mm -hmm. All the depictions of the angel, you know, it's like a people angel. But right. is this the period in which angels were just like crazy eyeball spinny doos? There's a reason that every story starts with the angel saying, be not afraid. They were terrifying <laughs> to look at. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so that's why they were disguised as men in this story. They were disguised as looking like men. And we can do a whole other episode on, on, on the, the deep dive into the categories of angels, seraphim versus cherub versus all the different hierarchies. Spoiler alert, Tracy's going to reveal that cherubs are not just pudgy babies with wings. <laughs> Might have to tune into another episode someday to find out. <laughs> okay, so we've talked about how terrible the city is. Let's talk about some ways that religious groups and leaders are rethinking the moral of this story from homosexuality is bad to a different narrative. Okay. According to the Reformation Project, which is by its own description, a Bible-based Christian organization whose mission is to advance LGBTQ inclusion in the church. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah has two potential messages. The first is the classic, homosexuality is evil, which they regard as a non-affirming message. The second is an interpretation which they feel addresses the problem of gang rape and violence against outsiders. To recap once again what the story is. The story is two angels disguised as men being sent into Sodom to see if it is as terrible and sinful as they have been led to believe. They are treated kindly and hospitably by Abraham, Sarah, Lot, and his family. But the other men of Sodom threaten to rape the two angels. The argument presented here is that the story is about the aggressive and humiliating act of gang rape against victims, not about engaging in homosexual acts. A loving, consensual relationship is not what brought down the city. Violence and aggression did. 
So like you said earlier, wrath is the sin, not lust. Boom, baby. Mm-hmm. She, she hit the nail on the head, folks. Look at her go. <laughs> My boom was for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Ezekiel 16.49 says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. While there are over 20 references to Sodom and Gomorrah in the scripture, only two even mention sexual sins at all, and none mention same-sex behavior specifically. Yet the story is remembered as being about such acts. We even have the word sodomy today as reference to this story. Okay, here's the thing. So... I can reference it from my story that I covered today the best, but I think it's applicable to both of ours. The story of Samson tries to end itself before it officially ends in the Mm -hmm. text the way we have it, which is only one of the many pieces of evidence that belie that it was written by more than one person. Yeah. Um, And when you have a bunch of different people collaborating on one thing— You get all sorts of deviations. Are we Mm -hmm. surprised that sexual sins are not mentioned very often? No, because how many authors do we think Mm -hmm. influence this story? And at what point does it get picked up as the the thing the story is about so we can fit it into our narrative? Yes, it... That reality is what makes me very wary of people who do not believe that the Old Testament the New Testament, are absolutely available for interpretation because that's what that's what writing is for, really. Um, yes. I do not stand by literal interpretations of these texts. I don't think it serves us to take it at face value. I mean, I'm still over here with my cheese plate, so... <laughs> yep. <laughs> Continuing on, the Reformation Project goes on to say, Jude 7 says that Sodom and Gomorrah gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Some translations render this as unnatural desire, but it literally means different flesh, sarcos heteros. This phrase likely refers to the attempted rape of angels, given that Jude 6 refers to the Nephilim of Genesis 6, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling while Isaiah 1 equates the sin of Sodom with oppressing marginalized groups, murder, and theft. Jeremiah 23.14 links it with adultery, idolatry, and power abuses, Amos 4, 1 through 11, and Zephaniah 2.8-11 compare it to the oppression of the poor as well as prideful and mocking behavior. The earliest Christians read the story of Sodom as a parable about inhospitality, arrogance, and violence, not same-sex behavior. It doesn't surprise me that people will still ignore that and say, you know, take up the phrase unnatural desire because they already associate LGBTQ plus relationships Mm -hmm. with, quote, unnatural desire. It's words have power in a particularly keen way. Words have power. And in this case, it just means I a big light bulb moment for me was that it could be referring to the angels. That's the reference of the different flesh. That's interesting because I always read it as different, meaning like from a different place. Like they were they were different. They were other. I mean, the angels are. No, I'm sorry. I mean, like when they saw them as people, like from the mm. perspective of the assail- uh, 
That is true. It, this just means in terms of them, in, you know, another way to translate unnatural desire is meaning you want different flesh. So the many eyeballed angels are not available for desire. No. No, unfortunately, no. It's for the best. <laughs> Perry Kia writes for the We Star Institute, which is self-described as honest scholarship and religion for the public dedicated to advancing scholarship on the history and evolution of Christian tradition and addressing the results of scholarships to questions that matter in society and culture. Very, very short description they put up for themselves. I think I had to shorten it down a little bit further. I like th their goals. I had to dig into it to figure out because I was like, God, honestly, Rowan, I'm going to be honest with you. A fear of mine was to find a website that fundamentally I didn't agree with their goals. And I wanted to be really careful about where I got my information and how I looked to find the people who were trying to be thoughtful about the way they interpret stories in an inclusive way. So I had to include that because I did a lot of digging on what this what this site was about. We talk about that a lot, you and I, privately off the podcast, about our concern with our sources. I felt like for this episode in particular, my clue that a source was, um, I don't know, how do I say this? They were trying to, like, uh, push their values onto the, the reader rather than mm -hmm. to just have a discussion or, or present information. My clue was the... When a website picked a quote from the text and made it big, um, because mm. it was always for some reason that was that was the answer. It, it always ended up being a quote that was like telling the reader how they should behave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know how to explain <laughs> it. Also, pastels. The second it's in pastels, mm. I'm out. I found a lot of. I was really surprised at how in the forefront articles and information about a new way to interpret this story ended up being it wasn't that they were hidden in the back alleys of the internet well because it's it's legal now it's acceptable to be a member of the queer community in a way that it wasn't before and uh you know i think we have genuine people trying to do genuinely good work which are sources that you've pulled and we have virtue signaling that goes along with that like okay mm -hmm. fine you know let's let's make this better for people deal yes so let's talk about a story that is similar to sodom and gomorrah but not talked about quite as much perry kia writes that judges 19 provides a chillingly similar story to the Sodom story in Genesis. An unnamed man from the tribe of Levi is traveling with his servant and his concubine. They arrive in the town of Jebea and plan to spend the night in the town square. A little later, a man living in Jebea, but described as from the country of Ephraim, comes upon them. He warns them that they are not safe in the open and takes the three to his home. Soon the men of the city, a perverse lot, surround the house and demand that the owner send out the Levites so that we may know him. Like Lot, the owner tries to dissuade the mob. He offers to send out his virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine, but when the mob refuses to accept his offer, the Levite throws his poor concubine out the door anyway. The men of Jebeah rape her and abuse her all night long. It is a horrific story, and the woman dies as a result. So that's a story that I had never heard of, that 
is really similar to Sodom and Gomorrah, but is not pointed to as, here's an example of why people shouldn't be gay. Mm. It's so similar, it honestly seems like fanfic. It does. Like, it's, it's so similar. Mm-hmm. And the characters aren't named in this one. Like, in ours, at least, we've got Lot, we've got Abraham, we've got Edith, we've got Sarah. Okay, but if no means, in this case, sexually assault, why is this story any less gay if that's how someone is interpreting Sodom and Gomorrah? Like, if you're going to sit here and go, this is gay, it's about the gay, why would you not then force that onto that story? Exactly. I don't know. Exactly. Why is one propped up into our common lexicon and the other is not even talked about? If you really truly believe that these are as important to communicate to your audiences as some people claim to, why don't you find all examples of it? Equally, I think one of the real problems here, and it's it, it is made more apparent in this story, is gayness, gay intercourse is not synonymous with sexual assault. And I think that for people who choose to interpret it that way when they want these unnatural desires and they want to just bandy these words around, it would be very convenient if it was. But the fact of Mm -hmm. the matter is sexual assault exists in the straight world, in the gay world, in the entire spectrum. And it it is more obvious in this story that that's just a, a way to link it conveniently. The, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah never tells us that the men were homosexuals because that word does not exist in the Bible. Genesis says that all of the city of Sodom to the last man came out to surround Lot and his visitors. Are we to imagine a city comprised exclusively of homosexual men? Surely there were women and children in the city. It's a fair inference that some of the mob gathered about Lot's door were married men. The same holds for the other story I told. If one insists that the actions of the men of Sodom are an indictment of homosexual behavior, would one not also have to interpret that other story as an indictment of heterosexual behavior because of what they did to the woman? Yeah, yeah, I'm standing by that. It is convenient Mm -hmm. to link sexual assault with homosexuality when you want to be that bigoted. Yes, The stories of Sodom and Jebeah are examples of mob violence committed against outsiders. That's the sin of Sodom, not homosexual behavior. In my opinion, to equate such violence and aggression with a loving same-sex or LGBTQ plus relationship is cruel and deliberately ignorant to the message of the story and the reality of the lives led by LGBTQ plus folks. Yeah. As former President Jimmy Carter once said, Jesus <laughs> would promote any love affair if it was honest or sincere and was not damaging to anyone else, and I don't see that gay marriage damages anyone else. I'm sorry, but you just coming out with a Jimmy Carter quote after all that was a I shocker. I had to drop that in. <laughs> okay. I had a hard left turn on you there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, you know what? Whatever. I just... Mm. We, I think we hit this roadblock when we cover Abrahamic stories most often because um, the United States of America is a Christian country and everyone can pretend that it's not, but our money has 
the the Christian God mentioned mm-hmm. on it. So we can we can stop with that bullshit, frankly. Um, and I don't think we encounter this with other cultures as often because there's not this grand, widespread conspiracy to take one text and make it the end-all, be-all of how people should behave. (laughs) One text that's been translated. (laughs) Oh my god, I know. It's been translated so many different times, in so many different ways, with so many different authors. The fact that anyone thinks you should take it at complete face value is baffling. I think that's why, for my research, I continued to go back to my Jewish learning uh, as my source because Mm -hmm. that website is so dedicated to having a myriad of different scholars and rabbis writing about the topics. I, I had half a dozen articles pulled up in front of me from that one website at every given moment, and there wasn't mm-hmm. the same writer on any one. Mm-hmm. And they were all varied, critical analysis of text. And that analysis does not in any way take away from anyone's religious beliefs because analysis and faith are not the same. No, they are not. I agree with that. Rabbi Stephen Nathan interprets the story as a tale of selfishness and egocentrism rather than homosexuality, claiming that the people of Sodom did demand that Lot hand over the strangers in their house so that we may know them, which is clearly a sexual reference in terms of biblical Hebrew. However, what makes them sinful, according to our sages, is not sexual desire or lust, but rather their desire to abuse and humiliate other human beings because they are strangers in their midst. The two messengers could have just as easily been women, and the people's response would have been the same. The sages teach us that only the wealthy were welcome as guests in Sodom. The poor were to be expelled or killed. Mm -hmm. In his book of Torah commentary, Jewish Values in an Open Society, the economist and business ethicist Mayer Tamari writes about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah as the sin of economic egoism. He reminds us that according to our sages, the greed and desire for wealth on the part of the residents was insatiable. Anyone who got in their way, such as a poor person who might ask for some of their money or food, was expendable. All common human decencies were anathema to the Sodomites. This even affected Lot, who, thanks to being raised by Abraham and Sarah, still knew to offer the strangers, angels, hospitality. Yet he was still willing to give over his daughters to satisfy the people's sexual lust rather than hand over his guests. Our sages taught it is the custom of the world that a man is prepared to kill or be killed in order to protect his wife and daughters— Yet this one, Lot, is willing to give his daughters over to sexual abuse. Even Lot had begun to take on the characteristics of his neighbors, and so he needed to be rescued before he and his family became just as depraved as the remainder of the residents. Mmm, that's a really good point. Mm Mm-hmm. The callousness of the residents that was so infectious was based on this desire to always have more for oneself, more money, more land, more jewels, more servants. No thought was given to what others had. No one cared about helping those less fortunate. What is mine is mine, and what's yours is yours was the ethic of Sodom and Gomorrah. At first, this would seem to be a sensible and harmless ethic, and yet it places the emphasis on individual possessions and financial gain and ignores the demand that we care for all of humanity. Tamari reminds us that unlike the Talmudic beliefs that certain urges decrease when they remain unfulfilled and others, such as hunger, increase when unfulfilled, 
The urge for monetary and material gain increases when one has less and one amasses more if left unchecked. This leads to that sense of economic egoism, of which Tamari speaks. So that's a third, a, a different take on greed being the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. I love that analysis. Right? I had to throw that in at the end because it was just so mind-blowing. Do you ever just sit around and think, okay, what if the folks writing the Old Testament really didn't like the queer community? Okay, what if they didn't? They also thought the world was flat, potentially. Or maybe they didn't. Whatever. They also had a lot of beliefs that were mm-hmm. were not right. And we're a little farther in the future now. And we learn to do better. Isn't it nice that people are improving? Like, Do you ever just say, okay, sure. <laughs> like, what if they were <laughs> wrong? Oh, yeah, Ugh. absolutely. I am so of the opinion that it is, it is so vital to continually reassess your opinions on anything and everything with more information being presented to you. That being wrong is not a character flaw, but refusing to admit when you are is one. I would also like to add to the list of character flaws, choosing to stay wrong because people hundreds of years ago might have been wrong, might, is also a character flaw. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. So, okay, so everyone should know. Tracy's heading, because I can see the heading, is looking for lost cities. Her next bit. Mm-hmm. Tracy, are you going to tell me about archaeology? Yes, I am. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> According to Wikipedia, there have been various proposals and attempts to locate the Canaanite pentapolis situated around the Dead Sea. Because remember, there was those five cities, not just Sodom and Gomorrah. Many locations have been proposed for the infamous cities ranging from northeast to southwest of the Dead Sea. No archaeological site or ruin has or thus far, can be reliably determined as Sodom or Gomorrah. But it's been theorized that if the story does have a historical basis, the cities may have been destroyed by a natural disaster. One such idea is that the Dead Sea was devastated by an earthquake between 2100 and 1900 BCE. This may have unleashed showers of steaming tar. Oh, God. It is possible that the towns were destroyed by an earthquake, especially if they lay along a major fault such as the Jordan Rift Valley. Tar? Showering tar. Yep. No wonder it was seemed as a destruction by a wrathful god. Wow, okay. I would think so. Yeah. I'm still available for that answer if tar rains down on me, frankly. Honestly, same. There is a lack of contemporary accounts of seismic activity within the necessary time frame to corroborate with the earthquake theory, but there is a new theory as of 2018 as to what might have happened. According to an article by Eric Mack for Forbes, new research finds that a powerful airburst from a meteor colliding with the atmosphere may have wiped out a Bronze Age civilization along the north side of the Dead Sea some 3,700 years ago. While the findings come from the excavation of the Tal el-Hammam archaeological site in Jordan, many believe that the same place was once known as Sodom. Samples of the site show an extremely hot, explosive event leveled an area of almost 200 square miles, including the Middle Gore, a circular plain to the north of the Dead Sea. The researchers theorize that the intense shock waves from the blast may have also covered the area with a superheated brine of Dead Sea anhydride salts. The team also says that archaeological evidence shows that it took at least six centuries for the region to recover and for civilization to return, thanks to the contamination and destruction of the soil. That is so cool. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh. 
So I got really excited by seeing that. Had to talk about that because years ago in high school, I fell down a rabbit hole of people hunting for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and documentaries and books about it. So it's always something I've been interested in. So it was cool to see that as of 2018, there's a new theory. I love it when people discover lost cities. Me too. Or evidence of lost cities. And I know we already covered Atlantis, but if someone could really just please deliver that to me, despite all evidence and logic to the it's converse. Not real. I'm sorry. Atlantis is not real. Maybe I know. Maybe Milo but Thatch will find it for us. That's the one, you know? That's the one I want. <laughs> then we will go and find it for you, my dear. Thank you. <laughs> that is my story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do we have, like, a general thesis for both of these tales? They're both from the same text. The general thesis is these stories are more complex than many people today would like to tell you uh, at face value when using these stories as an argument for their own benefit. This episode brought to you by the Dagger of Nuance. And the Sword of Context. <laughs> so, Trace, <laughs> I know that you had kind of a rough week. Mm -hmm. So I brought you nice things that people said about us on the internet. Ooh, oh, I love that. The downside is that you are being perceived, but the upside is that you're being perceived well. Okay, I'll take it. <laughs> so, Stefan B., who is our patron, thank you, mm -hmm. Stefan, wrote into us on Instagram. Hello there. Just wanted to tell you that I, after stumbling over one of your reels, started listening to you two. I'm now well into episode four and I'm loving it. You got yourself a new regular listener. I think that reel was a piece of content that you made, my dear. I made in, f I don't know, five minutes after getting my hair cut one day because I found a song that I could lip sync to. <laughs> like it wasn't... I'm glad people like that reel. I did not work very hard on it. Okay. And then the other thing someone wrote in on our Instagram, it's from Cassie. Quote, by the way, because I know your love languages are words of affirmation. Oh, my God. I, I have barely stopped listening to your podcast since I stumbled upon it about a week or two ago. I would love a book of all of your stories just to curl up with and read again and again. And listening to you, too, as someone who also went through an Egyptology phase, <laughs> it feels like I'm catching up with old friends every time I start a new episode. Oh, my God. Okay, first of all, you are catching up with old friends. All of you are our friends now. We're all one big Willie and Fable family. How often have we talked about how much you and I listen to podcasts and it feels like we're hanging with people that we know? We're our best friends. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so it's so crazy to me that we are that for other people. Um, and I love you all so much. And you are all my best friend. And I will talk to you about books and coffee and Egyptology whenever we do also have a pretend book of ourselves and we sometimes like to <laughs> we send do. each other what we imagine the cover art would look like <laughs> mm -hmm. it exists in our minds very dark academia yes <laughs> yes that is so that was so sweet thank you so much both of you for writing in that did make my week better yeah people people are so nice people are so nice people are people are the best i I hate being perceived, but I love making new friends. So it's a trade-off I'll make. That is quite the conundrum. I know. Do you want to read a new five-star review? <laughs> yes. Okay, scroll. And you will find it. 
Okay. It's from Scorpio147. Love this podcast. I recently discovered this podcast and I'm absolutely obsessed with it. I love mythology, lore, legends, etc. And I appreciate the amount of research Rowan and Tracy do before each show, including the history behind the lore. As a writer, I also appreciate that they write their own stories every week. I know what a challenge that can be at times. This is a quality podcast. I highly recommend it. Oh, that was so nice. I could barely get through that. <laughs> Spoiler alert. She didn't. She had to start over. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that a writer, one, appreciates our writing and also recognizes the fact that we not only have to research an entire podcast every week, but then write our own short stories. <laughs> we gave ourselves all the work. All of it. We said, what kind of podcast can we do? Uh, the one with the most work. I mean, God, for our the Wizard <laughs> and the Rogue episodes, it's just a full radio play. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for recognizing that and leaving us a review that was very sweet. <laughs> hey, Bestie, are you okay? No. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> so uh, why don't you fix that by telling me something good? So my something good this week is something that I bought. It's from... Raven and Rogue. Ooh. And it's a seller on Etsy, and they – I found them on TikTok. Um, they made the Tarotorial tarot deck, and it's Ooh. a tarot deck that is flashcards. So it has oh my God, all I want the that. information. And I really like it because I realized that I just needed to study a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, I come from a long line of women who read tarot, and I realized I should probably, um, like, actually kind of have an encyclopedia moment about it, not just a, Mm -hmm. I inherited this (laughs) moment about it. And it's really nice because they put the elemental associations with it and the zodiac, and they have all sorts of information. And some of the interpretations are different than ones that I'd heard. Some mm-hmm. are familiar, and it's it's really nice. And it's based on the Rider Waite tarot, which is my mode of choice, I guess. And I just, like, 10 out of 10, um, I feel like like this creator just really knocked it out of the park and I'm so grateful to have it. And I'm so, honestly, I'm so grateful to have basically a flashcard because like, I'm, I'm very protective of my tarot cards, not getting jacked up. Mm. I like them a lot. And so I don't end up bringing them places, but -hmm. when I travel, I would like to have something on me. And I think the fact that they're flashcards and they're just very accessible kind of takes that stress out of it for me. Absolutely. And just, it's nice to have something that you can just like use until you can't use it anymore. Yeah. I love that. I will probably be getting one for myself. And also you can find anything that we recommend on the recommendations page on our website, which is really just a way for us to keep track of all the cool things we like. Kaylee also has a deck too. Oof. Okay, so I need to get one so that our curse our curse coven group can Well, it happened because while we were away in the cabin, I announced that I was purchasing them and Kaylee went, Order me one and I just upped it to two and was like, Take my mm-hmm. money. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tracy, mm-hmm. tell me something good. All right. My something good is that this weekend I got to go out into the world um, to this. I know it was scary, <laughs> big moment, but 
I got to go to this adorable town. It's like an hour away from where I live. That's just all these shops. Like it's known for really cute shops and they had this big festival outdoors. It's their strawberry festival this month. And my friends and I just met up and walked around. For anyone who doesn't know what a strawberry festival is, in case there are people, it's just a... It happens in May and June, depending. Mm-hmm. It's just It's just that time of year. <laughs> it's just a strawberry... It, they just had stands of strawberry-themed food and drinks. It's kind of State Fair-esque-ish. This, sort of. Yes, this one wasn't. This is more that this little town is really just a town you visit and shop at. Especially, it's really known for around um, Christmas time for having a lot of tchotchkes. It's very German influenced. They have a German store. Two of my friends love because they lived in Germany for a while and they can get all their mm-hmm. favorite groceries. They literally treat this store like it's a grocery store for them. Ooh. So, really cute. Um, I got cinnamon honey butter. <sighs> what? It is, Rowan, it's so good. It's oh, just I could this whipped. Make that of dairy free yeah. version. It's it's not even it's not real butter. It's <gasps> it is dairy free. It's whipped cinnamon honey. Oh, that's oh, I could not make that, but I want it. Rowan, it's so good. They have a popcorn store, so I got this fancy gourmet caramel popcorn. Like I was <gasps> just living my best food life. So you just had a foodie moment. I had a foodie moment. It was lovely. Um I pretended I was getting the cinnamon honey butter for my sister but she lives with me so really it was for both of us that is a magnificent form of manipulation of the self that i love Mm -hmm. it was way easier to justify spending money on it when it was a gift in my head one starbucks one burrito okay real quick we have to explain this so in college my sister and i started this joke of we were broke college kids so we would decide if we wanted to buy something if it was worth giving up a drink at Starbucks or a burrito because we loved getting burritos. So it was $5 for a drink at Starbucks and $10 for a burrito. So if a shirt was $20, were you willing to give up two burritos or a burrito and two Starbucks? If the answer was yes, you should buy the shirt. If it was no, you don't need the shirt. This is on our minds because I was buying a thing and I wasn't sure and I was texting Tracy and she did that to me. And because we're we're all broke college students in our heads. That logic mm-hmm. worked great, and I bought the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot harder when you actually have money and you're not a horribly broke college kid and you can reasonably afford small things in your life. Right. If you think about the adult money factor, it's out the window, but that's not the point of the exercise. No. And it's just a really shorthand way for us to talk to each other about how much things cost. We're like, it's two burritos. And I forget that that's not a term that most people know. So Rowan had to learn really quickly what I meant when I said it's only two burritos. You should do it. I understood it when you added the Starbucks into it because I have done a version of that. So I, mm-hmm. I, I get what you're throwing down. Um, so I think we just did like heavy metal stories. <laughs> we did. We did. Of crime and punishment. <laughs> crime and punishment. Old Testament tales. We don't know what the title of this episode is yet, so whatever it is, congratulations us. We figured it out. (laughs) Hey, future Tracy, you're doing great. Thank you so much. (laughs) All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay?
Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch. Or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. (laughs) 